I received two telephone calls from Pastor Bill Emberley this week. As most of you know, we're helping the Emberleys plant a church in Halifax, Nova Scotia, in Canada. Uh, the second call, Pastor Emberley passed on some very exciting news about their ministry there in Canada, and I really look forward to sharing that with you tonight. Um, the first call earlier in the week I wanted to pass on to you, it was a call of encouragement. Pastor Emberley, as uh, most of you would know, is a Canadian, and he wanted to send along the message to us that Grace Baptist Church, and indeed all of Canada, has been shocked by the events that engulfed our nation recently. He expressed that Canada grieves with us, and he gave these three tangible illustrations. I thought I'd share them with you. They really were uh, impressive to me. He said, first of all, all around you find American flags flying next to the Canadian flag. That hasn't happened as long as I live. That's an amazing thing. And I, my parents were up there as well during this time of, of uh, September 11th. They were up in Canada and said the same, brought the same report back from the western part of Canada. Secondly, he said there was a memorial service at Parliament, on the grounds of Parliament, and there were 100,000 Canadians that gathered there. Maybe some were Americans as well, of course, but 100,000 people gathered for that service. And then he told of 66 commercial airliners that were diverted on September 11th to the Halifax airport. Let me give you just a little perspective. When Beth and I were up there a year and a half ago, we walked in in the morning to fly back here, and they said, are you Mr. and Mrs. Miller? <laughs> there was two people at the desk, two ticket agents. One was sitting on his hands and the other knew who we were as we walked in the door. That's Halifax Airport. 66 jets flew in there on that day and he told of how people in Halifax opened their homes to total strangers to take them in. Just some amazing stories. Now, generally speaking, I think it's true, as he would say, as he did, as we discussed it, that Canadians are a little less than enthusiastic about things American, and often, I think, for good reason. But our two bordering nations are, as he described it, like two brothers. As he put it, and I say this from his words, that Canada is the smaller and weaker brother, and there's a lot of sibling rivalry between us. We bicker a lot across the border and we irritate each other from time to time. But when someone bloodies your big brother's nose, we become his staunchest defender. Amazing words. I really enjoyed the time with him and wanted to pass on that uplifting news from Canada, which has been greatly roused in our support. We witnessed a similar response from England this week. We've had a squabble or two in the past with England, and yet uh, how encouraging to see the support there. Prime Minister Tony Blair flew to the U.S. to attend President Bush's speech. I'd like to just filter that for a while. He flew here to attend a speech, and he said that his father's generation faced the Nazi blitzkrieg and America stood by England in her time of trial. Now in your trial, said Blair, we are here to stand by you. These are heartwarming gestures of support. They are not, however, universal sentiments, are they? Although words of consolation have come in from around the world, 
it is clear that the fraternity we sense with so many nations in the West has not experienced to the same degree with nations in the East. It has been troubling to me, as I'm sure to you and to all of us here, Americans, Canadians, English, and beyond, to watch as Palestinian Muslims rejoice in the streets over our suffering. And I don't know about you, but that just raises a lot of questions. We are very isolated as a country. We tend to be very in-focused and not really understand our world, and it's raised a lot of questions. I'm anxious to get back to our series on Providence, but I, I really weighed this hard today, but I think that it might be wise to take another sideline as we did last week and to address a few more issues regarding the attacks our nation has absorbed from radical Muslims in recent days. We, we talked about this at the men's breakfast yesterday. I think there's some things that we do need to stop and think about. And I hope to be enlightening and encouraging to you today. I don't have a clue of how to get through what I have here. Trying to distill a topic that is impossible to distill, but I don't want to turn this pulpit into a discussion of Islam for the next month and a half, which could be very easy to do. But I do think as Christians, if you can bear with me today to just try to pick pieces out of these notes, I do think that there might be some issues that would be very helpful for us to understand, and as I prayed, I hope we can leave with a better appreciation of what we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We asked last week four searching questions. Did God will the events of September 11th? There's a yes and a no to that answer. Should we forgive our enemies? There's a personal side to that, and then there's a government side to it. Is God judging America? Obviously, but not uniquely. Not uniquely now, and not for any particular sin or sins that we can define with certainty. We survive because of God's mercy. What then is he doing? Our fourth question last week, we do not know. He has not revealed this to us in his word. What we do know is that he is to be trusted. What we know is that we are his ambassadors holding out the light of the gospel in a fallen world. That's all we know. But how do we understand that world? How do we understand this world in which we live? Specifically, who are the Muslims and why do so many of them hate America? How do we see God's perspective in all of this? What is really going on? And I'd bring in the topic that we discussed yesterday at the breakfast. That is, we are ambassadors for heaven. We are not here as Americans, ultimately. We're thankful for our heritage. We're thankful, those that are Canadians here among us, for our homeland and other places, possibly, that are represented here this morning. We're grateful for our nations, for what God has done, for His grace. But we are ultimately citizens of another land. How do we filter these events? How do we understand this world that we might be the best ambassadors possible for the gospel of Christ? This is certainly for those who visit not common fare for our preaching services, and I apologize for that in some ways, but again, I think that it would be helpful to kindle some thoughts afresh for a passion for Christ and His glories, as well as maybe just to understand our world a little better. So if you allow me one more sideline today, and let's hope by God's grace we can move on uh, to life that is more normal in the years and days ahead. But for a few moments together, let me talk about, first of all, just some of the basics. As we look 
to a religious faith that we many of us don't understand at all. First of all, some words. To understand any religion or any new topic, you've got to define some terms. What does Islam mean? It is an Arabic word which means to submit, and the idea is submission to the will of Allah. If you want to define what a Muslim is, what the Islamic religion is, it is about submission to the will of Allah. The word Muslim itself is really just the same word. We don't catch that in English. These words mean nothing to us by way of English. But Islam means to submit. Muslim means one submitting, an individual who is submitting. So we might roughly parallel Islam is the parallel to Christianity in, in name. Uh, Muslim, with the parallel, would be Christian. So if you follow the teachings of Islam, you are submitting to the will of Allah and you are called a Muslim. Allah, the God of Islam. Islam is like Christianity and Judaism in that it sees that there are not many gods but one God. Hear, O Israel, God said. The Lord, your God, the Lord, is one. Foundational teaching of the Old Testament and a passage of scripture that, the, that Islam would hold to and believe in the Old Testament, that the Lord is one. But unlike Christianity, Islam denies that God is triune. It sees no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in consequence, it is vehemently opposed to the idea of Jesus Christ being God. In contrast to the biblical revelation of God, communing through eternity past among the three persons of the Trinity, Allah holds no such fellowship. In fact, that really follows not only to no such fellowship within his own being, but Allah has really very little, if any, fellowship with humanity either. He is a faraway God, never very near. So it depends on how you want to cut it. Does Islam focus its adoration upon the true God but fail to conceive who that God really is? Or secondly, does Islam promote another God altogether? Well, perhaps there's no need to differentiate between the two. Whatever the case, the Muslim conception of Allah is radically distinct from the God of Scripture. Muhammad, another word that we hear a lot of. Muhammad will look more carefully at his history and teaching in a few minutes, Lord willing, but suffice it here to say that all Islam, the various sects and divisions, all Islam believes what Muhammad taught about Allah. It comes directly from his writings and from his actions as a prophet of Allah. And those prophecies were compiled in a book called the Quran. You might see it uh, written different ways. As a matter of fact, everything that you see in Arabic is written different ways, spelled different ways, because there's no uh, common transliteration, uh, no rules for transliteration. So you see these things uh, spelled differently, usually in English, K-O-R-A-N. But the Quran is the book in which Muhammad's teachings have been compiled, and they teach about Allah and things of life. Now, in geography, we're probably somewhat familiar with the spread of Islam in the east, in the Bible lands in particular, down through South Africa, I'm sorry, through Northern Africa. And we prayed for this portion of the world year after year on Wednesday nights. If you're here on Wednesday nights as an adult, you can see the map right here as we pray for the gospel spread in the Islamic nations. They are Middle Eastern peoples and tend to be very connected to culture. 
That is, their, their faith is very connected to culture. If you're born in India, you're born a Hindu. You've got to convert to something else. If you're born in these nations, you are born a Muslim, uh, unless your parents are something else. But it's very connected to the culture and to this region of the earth. I don't think that that's what, how Islam would like to leave it. It would like to uh, conquer the earth as uh, believers in Christ would like to spread the gospel. There's no question about that. But at this point in time, it is largely focused there in the Middle Eastern region and North Africa. History. We've studied the history of the Islamic peoples without probably even recognizing it, but let's just go back and remember Genesis chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. I made some brief mention at that time, but Genesis 16, 11 and 12, by that I mean when we went through this passage not too terribly long ago, Genesis 16, verses 11 and 12 you remember that Abraham, in his sin, uh, bear, uh, fathers a child through Hagar, his wife's slave. He uh, takes her in as a concubine and has Ishmael. We find this prophecy, Abraham's son Ishmael, Genesis 16 and verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, that is to Hagar, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be, and here is a prophecy about Ishmael's people. He will be a wild donkey of a man. And by that, that we, sometimes we use in English the idea of donkey as stubborn uh, or sometimes dumb. But I think the idea here is resistant and with the wildness, the idea of unconstrained. No one will be able to really bring him under control. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward his brothers. Now there's a, there is a uh, textual variant there which really doesn't change the issue at all. But he will live in hostility. He will live in hostility. This is a prophecy about Ishmael and his descendants. God promises an offspring to them. And you remember the promise to Abraham that he will have a, an offspring. And he thinks, first of all, of Ishmael in chapter 17 and verse 18 and following. You can just skim it there. But he says, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And God says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. But verse 19, Sarah will bear you a son. You will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. Verse 20, he speaks about Ishmael. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. So God very clearly chooses uh, Abraham's descendants through Isaac, but Ishmael will also be blessed. Chapter 25, I'm sorry, chapter 21 and verse 8 get to 25 in a moment, but chapter 21 and verse 8, we read of that story where Isaac is uh, mocked by Ishmael and Sarah desires to cast Hagar out. You can skim down there through verses 8 and 9. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, verse 10, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son Isaac, she says to Abraham. And the matter distresses Abraham. Verse 12, But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So 
Reluctantly, Abraham sends Ishmael away. And we remember here the deliverance of the Lord in the desert of this young man. Chapter 25 and verse 12 is the account of Abraham comes to a close. 25 and verse 12. This is the account of Abraham, son of Ishmael, whom Sarah's maidservant, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. And then we have here his genealogy. Down to verse 18, an interesting verse. His descendants settled in the area of Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go down toward Ashur, and they lived in hostility toward all their brothers. Again, the textual variant might be that they lived to the east of their brothers. But the point is these are eastern peoples that come from Abraham. And there is a prophecy earlier there, if not here, of a hostility that will mark these people. Constant tension. Now, the Muslims largely have a natural hostility toward Abraham's seed through Isaac. And there are constant tensions even among themselves. But that leads, the Ishmaelites lead into the person of Muhammad. Muhammad was born in the city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia in 570 A.D. His life and revelations are really the engine that drives all that Muslims do. One expert on Islam writes this, and this is very helpful, I think, to understand. More than any other man who has ever lived, Muhammad shaped the destinies of his people. And though they left him far behind as they moved along the path of civilization, they still look back to him for guidance and authority at every step. Muhammad was born in an Arab world in which factious tribes squabbled away any opportunity for world influence. He was a deeply religious man who was known to go out into the desert and meditate and think. Fasting was a ritual of his life. Frustrated with the polytheistic and superstitious religion of his native Mecca, he began to think there had to be a better way. We don't know all of the influence upon Muhammad's thinking, but he appears to have had some influence from Christian teaching as well as the Jews. And at age 40, he received what has come to be taken as his first revelation. At first, Muhammad, as the history is accurate to describe, he, possessed, he felt that he may have been possessed by the jinn a jinn, or we use the word a genie. It was a, it, uh, understood as a creation halfway between angels and man. And he felt that his, this revelation, he knew something had happened to him, and he felt that he may have been possessed by a genie. But people continued to convince him to keep thinking. They liked the poetry that this supposed revelation produced, and so they encouraged him to think of this not as coming from a jinn, not as coming from some genie that possessed him, but rather to think of this revelation as coming uh, from Allah, this one God that he was beginning to see. And after the assurances from others, he began to have more and more uh, revelations whom he conceived to be coming from the angel Gabriel. Uh, dictated to him by Allah. Few believed Muhammad, and after much ridicule, his writings turned more and more toward defending himself and identifying himself as one of the prophets of the past. All prophets are hated, he said, and I am just receiving what all great prophets have received. So the writings of the Quran become more oriented toward him, that is chronologically. They're not arranged chronologically, but in chronology they become more oriented toward defending him as the great prophet. In 622, he was driven from Mecca, his homeland, 
where the leaders of the city felt that his monotheistic teachings were going to ruin their trade in polytheism. That is, Mecca was a place where people would come in caravans and worship the many gods, and they were making a lot of money on it, and they didn't like this guy talking about only one god. It's going to cut down the caravans. Well, Muhammad took it in his hands to flee from Mecca and to cut down the caravans by himself. He uh, hid out in the desert and became very adept at raiding caravans that would come into Mecca and determining that way that they weren't going to profit from this trade. And in it all, somehow, the people of Mecca said, okay, can't beat them, join them. And they adopted uh, Allah as their God. Now, we, we have to understand this here. This is a, a radical change. They were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. But uh, controlling these caravan routes into Mecca, they soon uh, converted to Islam and to follow Muhammad's teachings. Now, he at this time is in uh, Medina, uh, in Saudi Arabia, where he had had a much better reception and had been seated as the head of their theocracy. Uh, Muhammad's following, though, was growing, and it was growing very rapidly. And soon, there was all of a sudden, it was like a lake at about 33 degrees. That was the Arab world. It was very fluid, disconnected. But then the temperature dropped to 32 degrees, and all of a sudden things started to connect very rapidly. That is, Muhammad's uh, uh, teaching connected the Arab factions with a single language and a single creed, and very rapidly they began to unite and began to develop into a very strong military force across the Middle Eastern region and began moving westward into lands that were the uh, homeland of Christianity. Now, Muhammad at this point thought, as we go west, we're going to win the Jews. They're going to see this monotheistic faith, and they're going to realize that I am the true prophet. The Jews had one major problem. Muhammad didn't have his Old Testament figured out. And he constantly came up with wrong statements about the narratives of the Old Testament, and that drove the Jews crazy. How can this be a true prophet when he doesn't even know the, the uh, Hebrew scriptures? In fact, Muhammad was never able to read Hebrew and made some incredibly, uh, really foolish statements about the Old Testament text, being very, uh, making it very obvious he had really not read it or knew very little about it at least. So if God had spoken to Muhammad, the Jews responded, how is it that God has gotten his facts so mixed up with this new prophet? Muhammad was deeply offended and claimed that since he knew he was receiving divine revelation, there was only one answer, and that's that the Old Testament uh, guardians had erred. That is, that the Old Testament was in error. What he said was true. What the Old Testament said, wherever there was a contradiction, was false. So he held to the Old Testament. He honored Moses and his writings, but wherever Moses said something he had not received in his revelations, Moses was wrong and he was right. He proposed that the Jews should be massacred then as infidels and turned his attention to following Abraham, who he claimed was neither a Jew nor a Christian. Muhammad taught that there were six major prophets, and this is helpful for us to understand. Each of these introduced a new dispensation in Allah's purposes on earth. Think of this. These are the prophets he accepts. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus. Those were the major prophets on earth. The sixth and final was himself, Muhammad. And at each turn, there was a change in dispensation, a change in the working of God, 
on earth. He accepted as divine revelation the law of Moses and the Psalms of David, the gospel of Jesus, and the Quran. Though when Moses differed with his revelations, Moses was wrong. When David differed with his revelations, David was wrong. And Jesus and all that he said in the Gospels was corrupted by the disciples of Jesus. So he accepts, and Muslims would accept, even the New Testament documents, they would just want to remove anything that has anything to do with the deity of Christ. And the Quran then was the ultimate witness of divine truth and superseded all previous revelations. So that became the new standard. Muhammad held a number of other teachings, some of which were as strange as they were ignorant. For instance, he believed that Christians believed in, the, in a trinity, that there is a triune God, and he had that right. The only problem was he didn't have the right members in the trinity. He thought that the trinity, that Christians were teaching, that God was Father, Virgin, Mother, and Son, and that the Father and Mother cohabited to produce the Son within the Trinity, and that was a horrible teaching to him, and all Christians agreed with that, but he obviously did not understand at all the teaching of the Trinity. Uh, Jesus was a good man, he said, a prophet sent by God, a sinless man who was caught up to heaven, but when he was caught up to heaven, they mistake someone else for him, and that's the person that was crucified. Jesus never rose from the dead, he was not God, he was just a sinless man and a great prophet. He taught that the Holy Spirit, that is Muhammad, taught that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, you remember this in John 9, Jesus says, I'll send another Comforter, that was Muhammad. That was a prophecy of Muhammad, he said, that this Comforter, the Holy Spirit, as we understand, was the prophet Muhammad who was to come. And both Muhammad and Christ, he taught, will come back someday. And Jesus is going to marry a woman when he comes back. He's going to have children by her. He's going to destroy the sign of the cross and acknowledge that Islam is the true religion. Well, the rationality of one's teaching are critical to an evaluation of any prophet, but the quality of a prophet's life is also an important test. We've already noted that Muhammad was a known caravan raider. He appointed assassinations in order to manipulate a following. He called for the massacre of Jews, in large part was willing to kill and overrun any on his way to success. Some of his teachings were morally repulsive as well. He did not always practice what he preached. But the Quran limits a man to four wives at one time, not including as many concubines as you would like and as you are able to support. A concubine is just essentially a, a slave that lives in your home for sexual purposes. That is the Holy Bible of the Muslim lays this out as a, as a rule. This is good. But... Muhammad didn't even follow his own rule. He had more than four wives at one time. The Quran demands that a husband divide his attention among his wives, which all know that Muhammad did not do, did not follow. He also violated holy law by marrying his adopted son's ex-wife. And within Islam, whatever God you follow, you follow his character and his nature. Whoever, what prophet you're listening to, you will follow his nature. And within Islam today, there is a horrible problem of divorce. Now, a nation such as ours has nothing to say. We have no moral basis to even offer any objection because we are in an absolute horrifying situation in the area of divorce as well. But all that being said, Islam is, is hurt deeply by 
a constant problem with divorce. What is so common in lands today is for uh, a very young woman to bear a much older or an older man, several children, and then she is divorced. And uh, he goes on to another model or two or three. If he's a good Muslim, uh, you can't go more than four. But uh, the woman is then forced to move in with her family, back to her family, where she's often married off again. And that complicating this whole situation, a woman is not permitted by law to divorce a man. Some work against this by demanding a large dowry payable at death or at divorce. That kind of keeps some, some in, in line on these things. And there are countries that are seeking to reform these issues. We have to understand that. We'll get to that more in just a moment. But the reform is not due to following Allah. And it's not due to following Muhammad's writings. It's due to looking at culture and the horrors that have been caused to women by these laws. Now, in his day, Muhammad was seen as a righteous man, a generous, genial, wise, perceptive man. But in the light of the teachings of Jesus Christ, he is seen over and again to be nothing but a fallen man. Let me jump quickly to medieval history. Muhammad died, leaving behind no successor, which they referred to as caliph, the caliph. The caliphate's job was to enforce Muhammad's teachings and uh, war was often the case in the Middle Ages. Conquest of land was the goal. The polytheists were to be killed. The monotheists, the Jews and the Christians of conquered lands, were given an option. They didn't uh, necessarily command that they would be killed, but they were to accept Islamic law. Or if they wanted to maintain their monotheism in many places, they were permitted to do so if they would pay tribute. Well, this made life just about impossible for most people. And so by hook or by crook, uh, those that uh, came under the sword of Islam or the uh, progression of Islam many times became Muslim. Now, in counterattack were the, what we refer to as the Crusades, an ugly blot on the history of Europe. But Roman Catholicism in particular sought to reconquer the lands that the Muslims had taken. And there was this holy war concept that went the other direction, that we will retake the lands of the Bible from the infidel Muslims. And there were horrible atrocities throughout the Middle Ages. We do need to see the whole thing in perspective and realize that everybody was killing everybody during that time. There was no such thing as peace in the Middle Ages. It was all about war. It was all about grasping land. And people always used some god or some religion to justify what they did. And there were horrible atrocities all around from everybody's perspective. But it led to a virtual stalemate in, let's just say, roughly about 1500 A.D., that leads us to the present day. Religiously, we need to understand that Muhammad's, Muhammad in the Islamic life is seen as the one to be actively imitated. There is an extreme veneration that is afforded to him. And not only what he wrote in the Quran, but the traditions that have risen up around his life. And the different factions of Islam will all fight over which traditions are true and which ones to take. But there's this deep veneration for his life. One, Islam, or one Muslim, for instance, just to give an example, said that he would never eat watermelon. The reason? In the traditions that were uh, extant, there was no indication whether or not uh, Muhammad broke the watermelon open or if he ate the rind or how he ate a watermelon so he was never going to eat a watermelon. That's, it's, now that might not be common but that's the veneration that some would uh, ascribe to or grant to uh, Muhammad. So there's an active following of his life 
And of course, you have caught, which is obvious, I think even to the honest Muslim, that there's a much lower moral standard here. And Islam would say, generally speaking, that, listen, you Christians, and by that they just mean the West, they see everybody as Christian, just as many times we see everybody as Muslim that lives there. Both are wrong notions. But they would say, listen, you Christians, you have this high moral standard of Jesus Christ, but you don't live it. Our standard's a little lower morally, but we live what we're supposed to live. We follow the prophet Muhammad. And Allah is the chief focus through the prophet Muhammad. Again, I think helpful quotation by an expert on Islam. He said this, The Muslim God can best be understood in the desert. Its vastness, majesty, ruthlessness, and mystery, and the resultant sense of the utter insignificance of man, call forth man's worship and submission, but scarcely prompt his love or suggest Allah's love. It's well stated that there is, a, there is a harshness, there is a distance in the idea of God in Islam. God is remote. As far as eschatology, I think there's some very serious problems that we would see right away. But there's a large emphasis on resurrection and judgment. All men will be raised, says one expert. The books kept by the recording angels will be opened, and God as judge will weigh each man's deeds in the balances. begins to break through, doesn't it? How I thank God I don't live under that law. God's going to judge my deeds and the balances. Anyway, sorry for the editorializing. But some will be admitted to paradise. Others will go through what will be something of a hell and somewhere be released if they're Muslim. Otherwise, they will be destroyed. But notice, here's the glorious vision of the prophet Muhammad of heaven. Some will be admitted to paradise where they will recline on soft couches, drinking cups of wine handed to them by the maidens of paradise, of whom each man may marry as many as he pleases. Others will be consigned to the torments of hell. And the destiny of women in eternity, do they become the maidens? There's no answer. Women are not considered in eternity in the Quran. Well, it goes on, and uh, we move to what are called the five pillars. In the five pillars of Islam, there is these are this is what gives coherence to their life. There are five set prayers a day. There is the resuscitation of the creed. There is no god but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. There are fasting rituals. There are fourthly alms giving, giving to the poor. It's a very small percentage, but there is giving to the poor. And then there is uh, number five, a journey to Mecca if you can get it in, in your life, if there's a way to do it. And there in those journeys, people from all over the earth congregate and and the uh, world-class religion is seen there in Mecca every year. This is salvation for the Muslim, to follow these laws, these five pillars of the faith, and to follow Muhammad and to know God through Muhammad. Um, most fear some type of eternal fire knowing that they are not righteous but they think that through keeping these laws they will in the end make it and they provide these laws cohesive force to the movement 
past the five pillars, let's consider just briefly jihad. We've heard of this. From the earliest times, the Muslims have divided the world into Dar al-Islam, where Islam reigns supreme, and Dar al-Harb, the abode of war. So either the world is Islamic reign or the abode of war. America is in the region of the abode of war from Islamic teaching. Now, you must have an official caliph's lawful pronouncement to declare war. There are rules of war. Terrorism is not part of that, uh, part of those rules. But there is a vision of the non-Islamic world that it is the abode of war. And that leads a long way. And it leads to great divisions among Islamic peoples. There's the main orthodox division of the Sunni, or the vast majority of Islamic peoples, who would be much more moderate, uh, probably very close to the majority of any Muslim person in this land would be part of that division or something even more moderate. But there's the Shiite, the official state religion of Iran, so there's some places where this group is very prominent. Very different views of the Quran. What it really boils down to is how they interpret the Holy Scriptures, the Quran. There are different Sunni schools of interpretation, and then the Sunnis differ from all these other sects, but it really comes down to this idea of how do we understand and interpret the Quran? Do we take it very literally? That would be the fundamentalists, that would be the radicals. Do we take it more loosely and continue to reinterpret it to fit more with society? Well, this leads obviously into great uh, problem in the area of politics because, and here's a key point, Islam sees no division between the church and the state. Christianity is illegal in most states, most Islamic states. It is greatly restricted in others and it is everywhere resisted. You will not hear this on the evening news most likely, but the Islamic law for apostasy from Islam is death for men and death or lifelong imprisonment for women. Now, these moderate states are not enforcing that, but this is their creed. This is the heart of what they believe. To convert out of Islam is a capital offense and your religion and your state are one. We would look at treason. We look at this as a horrible thing in our country, and we should. A traitor, some FBI agents selling secrets to Russia, and we were horrified. Nuclear secrets to China, these are traitors. And we have in our culture a sense that this is deserving of death. In an Islamic country, generally speaking, particularly the more conservative, to deny Allah is the same thing to them. To deny Allah, to become a Christian, to, to take on a different religion is an act of treason, of high treason that's deserving of death. Now again, not everyone will enforce this law. And so there's a great clash of ideologies. The moderates who follow Western politics and accept human rights codes even though they conflict with the Quran. There are some, they, uh, some would permit other faiths even to function within their land. Many hope to separate religion from personal and national life. One example would be Turkey, for instance, where Western ways are replacing Islamic ways while mosques continue to dominate the landscape. There's a strong interest to blend Muslim religion with Western science and a move to reinterpret the Quran in light of science. But then there are conservative fundamentalists. They are the literalists in interpretation. They are sticking with what the Quran says and hold to no separation of church and state and little sense of personal freedom. Let's take a quick case study, polygamy. 
or charging of interest. The moderates want to end polygamy. They see this as an abuse of women, and they're right, and they want to end polygamy. But they argue that then, this is how they get around it. Well, Muhammad said, you should only have four wives at one time, and you should, always, you should never favor one over the other. Well, what Muhammad meant by that was obviously that's impossible not to favor one over the other, so he's really saying you should stick with the one. That's a way of reinterpreting what Muhammad originally meant to fit more into what they hoped to see happen, that polygamy would be abolished in their state. Or with uh, charging of interest. It, uh, Muhammad's teachings against charging of interest, the moderates would say, well, he's only talking about extorting from the poor, hurting the poor. That's all that was intentioned there. So it's an interpretation battle that's constantly going on. The fundamentalists on the other side uphold the truths of their scriptures and they want to say we want to take what Muhammad says same thing that's going on in our country with the constitution and the jurists and all, all the this same issue life really isn't very different across the face of the earth they're just these, these differences of opinion where do the terrorists fit in it would be foolish to think that every Muslim is jumping up and down and cheering at what has happened. The vast majority are not. The vast majority are moderate and want nothing to do with terrorism and would like to see their countries become more Western, not less Western. That is by way of political science and, and economic laws and the like, and, and even some moral laws and uh, marriage laws and the like. But it all comes down to a matter of interpretation. And countries such as Pakistan teeter on the verge of civil war as they argue vehemently over how do we interpret the Quran. In a number of lands, primarily Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, and even in Egypt, factions hold to this medieval conquest idea that we are the abode of war. And whatever can be done to bring the United States or any other country that does not hold the Islam to its knees, so be it. This uh, particular individual that we're seeking now, uh, bin Laden, the U.S. is on holy land in his view in Saudi Arabia. He sees us as a Christian nation and he sees Christianity as extremely flawed or why would there be such corruption in a Christian nation? I'd love to have an hour to talk with them. I'm not sure that I could, but I'd, I'd like to talk with them. Uh, there's a lot of things to talk about. He's a man that is desirous of holding true to the text of his scriptures. Now, of course, he's gone way past what uh, even a normal fundamentalist uh, Muslim would do. But at any rate, he's trying to be faithful with his religion. And he sees Christians in our country trying to be faithful with their religion, which, of course, we would agree with him. They're not, in large part. But this issue of terror terrorism, we have to understand, affects us. But Muslim nations may be even more affected by what's happened here than we are. Because what it is doing is creating an incredible crisis within their countries over interpretation issues. Are we going to stick with the fundamental teachings of the Quran or are we going to change with the times? There's tremendous battles and this could, this could develop into more than one civil war. I'm not prophesying that, but I think it, it's very possible. So please understand, this is an isolated very small radical group on the fringe but it reflects the whole picture it reflects this concept that conversion 
is a capital offense. It reflects the concept that every non-Muslim land is the abode of war. It reflects the concept of Muhammad that we need to, pr uh, to promote Islamic teaching over the world. Well, I feel as a failure here for sake of time, but this is ugly, and that's all I ever want to give to another religion if I can help it the rest of my days. But I do think these things are important for us to think through, and I just bring to you a few thoughts that we could go from ugly, here's what something is, to the beauties of Christ and of our faith. And boy, they shine brightly, I think, in light of what we see here. I say, first of all, just in your mind, contrast Jesus and Muhammad. There's a key contrast here, I think, in the area of kingdom. Let's learn, turn to Luke 26. In the area of kingdom, Jesus and Muhammad conceive kingdom very, very differently. I'm going to work on the fly here. I have a typo because there's no 26 chapters in Luke, but if anybody knows where I'm at, oh boy. Um, what was I thinking? Let's go to John 18. I'm sorry about that. John 18. I'm trying to get too much in in one setting here. I've never done that before, you know, but <laughs> Luke 18 and verse 36. What I was looking for, Luke, I, I don't know what I did, it might, probably Luke 23, isn't that it, where Jesus is arrested? I think I have the verses right, but I must have just typed in the wrong. Well, that's not it either. I apologize. Luke, where is it? 22, thank you, there it is, Luke 22, I got 26 somehow. I want to put these two together, so if you found John 18, keep your finger there. Luke 22, 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. Jesus is in the garden here, praying the night of his betrayal. The man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come to him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Am I leading a rebellion, says Jesus? Does he go with the soldiers? He goes willingly. In a sense, he finds them there in the garden, and he follows their lead to crucifixion. Why is that? John 18, verse 36. Because as he stood before Pilate, Jesus made very clear, John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. What happened back there in the garden, Jesus says, took place purposefully, because my kingdom is not of this world. And any king who has a kingdom of this world will seek to advance that kingdom here on earth. 
and will do so through force in some way or another. Muhammad promoted an earthly kingdom at the point of a sword and his followers continue to operate with temporal perspective. Not all of them are terrorists. The vast majority are not. Not all of them hold to jihad and to holy war, though some of them do. But there is a temporal perspective. We serve, an amb- we serve as ambassadors of a coming kingdom, not of this earth. True Christianity has never advanced in any other way than spiritual conquest. Now, Muslims would drop over dead if they were told that because they see all that the Roman church has done through the world and all of the torture and all of the death, which even Roman historians admit to. They see that all as Christianity. We understand that. That is Christianity through works. It's Christianity through force. It's Christianity through law. Our kingdom is not of this world. And no laws and no rules and no armies are going to take the cause of Christ forward. The only thing that will take the cause of Christ forward is the gospel that converts the soul of individuals. That's what it's always been. In contrast to Muhammad, there's so many things I need to skim but his kingdom is not of this world. Christ's life was a sinless life. How I thank God for the model that we have. God knew. You can't find a man on this earth that can be a model for everyone for all of life. He had to come and do that himself. And he sent Jesus Christ, and we won't take time to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 27, who lived a perfect, sinless life life. He was God. He's the only model that any of us can follow completely. How I thank God that I follow Jesus Christ and not Muhammad. Thirdly, Christ's nature was divine. John 8, 58, he said, I am, using God's term of the Old Testament, I am, Philippians 2, 6, who being in very nature God, Christ's body was resurrected, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 17. Let's read those verses if we could. Just a few more here, if you hang with me for a few more minutes. Just, and, and I ask here, you have to bring this out of your own soul. You have to bring out of your own soul the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and consider it in light of the pages of God's word. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 and 17, as the scriptures speak, Paul writes, for if the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. How do I know Muhammad is wrong? How do I know? How do I know Jesus wasn't just a prophet like Muhammad? Or the Baha'i faith who is really an Islamic offshoot that has now another prophet. How do I know that Jesus is the true prophet? That he is who he said he was? How do I know that it was not his followers who deified him? There's one answer to that. An empty grave. Jesus rose from the dead as he prophesied and as the prophets had prophesied through the ages. Not one prophet. Many prophets that Jesus would rise from the dead. And as Jesus said throughout his life, they will kill me, they will kill me, they will kill me, but on the third day I'll rise from the dead. And he did. Muhammad tried and his people continue to try to conquer the world. They have failed and they will continue to fail. Jesus Christ conquered death. 
He took it on and he beat it. And in that victory, Jesus proved that he was God and proved the authenticity of every claim and every miracle. Muhammad was right. Jesus will come back and Jesus will marry. But Jesus will not marry an earthly woman. He will marry his bride, the church. That he came to redeem. That he came to give life to. He's the firstborn, the firstfruits from among the dead. He'll come back and he'll marry his church. And he will reign throughout all eternity. He will rule, but not with Muhammad. He will rule over Muhammad. And he will rule over every human being for every knee. Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Because the kingdom of God is not of this world and the kingdom of God will not serve as the final promotion of any earthly prophet. The kingdom of God will be the final promotion of God as Jesus turns the kingdom over to the Father for whom our souls were created and in whom they will rejoice throughout all eternity. How I thank God for Jesus Christ, for the life that he lived, for the example that he was the fact that he's coming again. A second line of consideration, and that is salvation by faith versus salvation by works. Islam on the broad road. Islam, and like we could say in general, as far as doctrine goes, even Roman Catholicism, their broad road leading to destruction because they are based on human effort. And any religion, including people sitting right here this morning in this congregation who are living to get to God by human efforts, you're not going to get there. Had an Islamic evangelist who tried to convert me while I was pastoring this church. I was young and early on. And someone put us in touch and he came to my home for several nights and tried to explain to me where Christianity was wrong, where Islam was right. And it became very clear very early that he was really not interested in logic or reason or even being fair. He had an agenda, was very pushy about that agenda, and very deceptive, I might add, about it all. But beyond that, we got to the end, and I said, all right, you came to me saying you wanted to know what Christianity was about. It's obvious you really don't care. You know exactly what Christianity's about. He had a Bible underlined. He found everything he thought was a mistake and he wanted to bring it all to my attention. You've been de deceptive. You've been deceitful. You gave me my shot. I told you what I believe about Jesus Christ. Now give me yours. What do I do to please God? What do I do to go to heaven? And he went from that point forward to give me nothing but rules. The five pillars. Admit that Muhammad is prophet and that God is one. Fast, give to the poor. And he went through the list of gifts or of, of works. And as I thought about that, as I spoke with him and considered it after, and as I said to him, you don't understand me. What's very clear from our discussions is you do not understand Dan Miller. I'm a sinner. And I know in my heart that I cannot please God 
every day of my life like I should. One thing he has shown me is that I fall short of his glory and all you've given me is a list to keep. I can keep that list. Just like millions of people around this world are keeping that list, but you haven't saved my soul. There is a holy God in heaven and I've got to meet him someday with my sin. What are you going to do with my sin? There's no answer. There's no sacrifice. There's no death to provide for the forgiveness of sin. There's just human works, and you can put it into Christianity. The vast majority of people who claim to be Christians are living the same exact way. They're no better than Muslims. Many times in their moral character, they're worse than Muslims, but they're all doing the same thing. I keep my list. I keep my rules. I do my good deeds so that when I get put on the balance in eternity, I go into heaven and not into hell because I was a pretty good person. How I thank God for salvation by faith alone and the work of Christ alone. As Ephesians 2.7 says, the whole thing being, we looked at this on Thursday night in our Bible study here, the Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. Yeah, forgive me, I'm talking to all these groups all over the place this week about the same thing. I can't remember who I said the what to whom, but... Verse 7, the whole point of salvation, the whole reason for salvation in Ephesians 2, 7 is in order that in the coming ages he might, be, might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There is nothing in salvation that is going to bring glory to us. And so it is. That's why the four is there in verse 8. Four. Here's the point of it all by grace you're saved through faith not of yourselves the gift of God not of works so that no one can boast you want to be a Muslim and go into heaven and drink your wine and marry all these women or be the women who are putting the cup in the hand of the man or whatever and all eternity talk about how wonderful you were that you kept the five pillars Or do you want to go before the God of the universe and to say, as our song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, to the mercy and the goodness and the love of God. Let me put this together for you. At the middle, if we could picture a ball cut in half, a picture, a circle, cut in half. On this side, Islam and works religion. On this side, Christianity and works religion. But as they stem out into different ideas, on Islam, fundamentalism, holding to the truths of the text of their holy book, what happens when you go down that route? Somebody always dies. The more stringent it gets, the more basic it gets, the more out there it gets in following the religion, the more people get hurt. What do we find on the other side on Christianity? Same center core of basic Christendom, most Christians trying to work their way to heaven and are as lost as any Muslim. But as you work your way out to those who are more literal to the text, 
who are seeking to be honorable to the word of God and to live that word of God, what do you see? People getting hurt. You know who's getting hurt? The missionaries who are laying down their lives for the people to whom they're taking the gospel. Fundamental, holding fundamentally to the truths of a, of a book leads to death. Is it the death of the people you're conquering or is it your death as you lay down your life for them? What did Jesus say? Luke 9, 23. If anyone will come after me, let him what? Take up his cross. Remember, bearing a cross is not a load to carry on your back. Like, oh wow, I've got this heavy load now that I'm a Christian. That isn't the point. Taking up your cross is taking up an electric chair and holding the plug in your hand and walking to the outlet. Taking up your cross is taking the noose in your hand and walking to the gallows. Taking up your cross is saying, you come to me. You die to self. And you lay down your life in love for others. And you give it. And so, Jesus says to the greatest missionary in the Christian cause, in the book of Acts chapter 9. Let me just read it. Acts chapter 9. What does he say to Paul? Here you go, Paul. Here's your way to life, health, and happiness. Here's your way to wealth, and you name it, claim it, I'll give it to you. Life's going to be easy. He doesn't say that. Does he say, here, Paul, here's a sword. Take the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'll give you a sword. What does he say? He, sa he speaks first to Ananias and says, Go. Acts 9.15, this man, that is Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Notice what it says, I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 11, wanted to read those, will not, you remember the stories, Paul says, here's how many times I was whipped. Here's how many times I was in the deep in the sea. Here's how many times I was robbed. Here's the times I was beaten. Here's the times that I was imprisoned. When you get to, when you go down the road of holding to the truth of the word of God, you don't take life, you give it. You don't follow a man who leads a force with a sword. You follow a savior who laid down his life on the cross and you give it away. Where does that motivation come from? You can't live that way. You can't lay down your life for other people on a consistent basis as genuine believers have done through the centuries unless there's a joy in your heart that supersedes this earth. If your kingdom is of this world and you want to conquer, you want to control, you want to stifle others, and you want to advance your cause, but if your kingdom's not of this world, you can live for a greater glory and you can give away everything, life and health and wealth and all of it in the cause of Jesus Christ because there's heaven. There's a glory ahead. There's a Jesus we're going to meet. And so you lay it all down for the joy of salvation, your own and the convert. And I think if we're going to penetrate the fog and the confusion that Islam has when it comes to Christianity, there will be only one way through it, and that is the death of Christian martyrs. 
there isn't any other way through that fog. I, it's, a, it's a sad thought, but it's a glorious future. Not taking life, but giving it. And that's the only way through that fog. Let me just say in closing one comment, one more point, and that is God dwelling among us versus Allah, distant and loveless. I thank God for the cross. It is offensive to the Muslim. It's offensive to any religion. As every Christian church that is practicing a works salvation doesn't get the cross right. They all deny salvation through Christ alone. I'm thankful that I don't worship God who's distant. I'm not sure if he loves me. I worship a God who took on flesh, who died in my place on a cross because he loved me. The word became flesh. Pastor Pratt read earlier. John 